seated. Good morning and uh, welcome to Houghton Wesleyan Church. Glad to have you here today. Uh, A few announcements. I'm going to refer to my cue card here. Uh, Tonight, 6 p.m., there will be a service of testimony. Testimony, fusty word maybe, but not a fusty idea. A good thing to come and celebrate the good things God has done in your life in the last week or over the summer. So I encourage you to join us tonight at 6 for that. Uh, there's another rose on the pulpit. Our church continues to churn out kids, and uh, that's a good thing. But uh, this is to celebrate the birth of Caitlin Janae Romance, and Peter and Jessica, I think, are in the 11 o'clock service. Correct? Yeah, yeah. And uh, just, you can take a look at the, the bulletin. There's a number of other announcements and inserts. Um, Sunday school uh, offerings are beginning to trickle in, so you'll see some adult Sunday school offerings in there, as well as a number of un- other things to command your interest Um, during the week. At this point, I will ask uh, for the ushers to come down and uh, collect this morning's tithes and offerings. And let me offer a prayer uh, for these gifts. God, what a wonderful world you've given us, full of so many good things. What good gifts we enjoy, and all of it is from your hand. We couldn't earn any of it on our own. We couldn't make any of it on our own. But in your goodness, you give us gifts. And not only this, you allow us to play a part in extending your gifts to other people. So thank you, God, for not only making us your children and your servants, but your friends and partners. We pray, God, for your blessing on these gifts, which come from us and come from you. Take them and make them good and perfect gifts of love for the world. In Christ's name, amen. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, 
You can be seated. In, uh, in some Christian traditions, the altar is kept away from the people. And uh, it's up far away from where normal people can get to it, and only clergy can get there, and clergy are not normal people uh, in many ways. But uh, thankfully, we are in a different tradition than that. And so the altar rail is here for you to kneel if you would like a special uh, communion with God this morning, a sense of being close to him, you're more than welcome to join me at the altar in prayer. Thanks.
We thank you, God, um, for all the good gifts that we receive from your hand. God, we're thankful for those that we notice each day and the ones that we look right past and hardly even notice at all. Each one of them are precious. We thank you, God, for your beauty displayed in creation. We look at the pictures coming back from Mars and we are stunned at the worlds which are beyond our grasp, beyond what we can see, beyond what we can touch and hold and control. And then we look closely and we see that that same power and and beauty is at work in the smallest things. In the wings of a hummingbird, in the flower, in a blade of grass, in an ear of corn, in all creatures great and small. All this beauty constantly is ours to enjoy and so we give you thanks. We thank you, Father, for the joys of human love. For the gifts of mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters sons and daughters, nieces and nephews. We thank you for the families you give us. More even than these, though, God, we give you thanks for each other in this church and in the body of Christ. We know that that you have blessed us a hundredfold in this body, that you've given us brothers and sisters, you've given us mothers and fathers here in this place. You haven't left us alone, God. We pray that you will help us to treasure our, our biological families, but especially our brothers and sisters In your body. Make us brave and beautiful in our relationships with each other. Make us bold to speak your word and humble to receive it. Make us fearless to give, knowing that we will receive back from each other and from you. We thank you, God, for our lives of work and rest. We're thankful for those in our little group here who are able to make a living doing work that they love. How rewarding that is, God. To spend oneself in toil and to have a sense of accomplishment and joy at the end of a day. We're thankful for for those in our group too who have had the ability to rest and rejuvenate during the summer. How good it is to just simply enjoy your gifts instead of working for them. At the same time, Lord, we pray for those who have not known these joys. We live in a sinful and a broken world and... And there are those among us who are underworked and there are those among us who are overworked. For those who seek employment but can't find it, God, we pray your blessing. Meet not only their financial needs, but meet their needs for meaning and purpose in their lives. And for those who are overworked, help them to deal with the stress well in a way that gives you honor and grant them a moment of rest and respite from their labor. We thank you most of all, Lord, for the gift of your son. We had been slaves. Slaves to ourselves. Slaves to the law. Slaves to the elemental spirits of the world. Slaves to our appetites. And then in the fullness of time, you, O Lord, sent your son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. So that we might all receive adoptions as daughters and sons. Your son gave us a home for here and for always. You rescued us from every form of slavery and you gave us freedom if we will embrace you. You loved us enough to point us to your way and to bear the cross so that death would lose its sting. And we rejoice. We say thank you. Thank you. And with space and time shattered at this moment, we kneel at your throne now. And with the saints and angels all over and always, we sing, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. All this is through your Son. And for his sake, we pray these things. That his work may be finished and complete in us. We now pray together the prayer that he taught us to pray when he was here. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power in the glory forever. Amen.
Would you please stand for the reading of the scripture and remain standing for the song to follow? The gospel reading for today comes from the New Testament and is found in the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. It can be found in your pew Bibles on page 990, Mark 1, 9 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild beasts, and angels ministered to him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is the word of the Lord.
Well, it's, it's good to be with you. Oh, I might not be on here. Am I on? I'm on. I guess. Can you hear me? If you can hear me, say amen. Amen. All right. There we go. All right. So, uh, it's good to be with you. Uh, this is my last time preaching this summer. And uh, the end to a sermon series that was uh, kind of ad hoc, but has turned out to be really a lot of fun. Uh, if you remember, just to bring you up to speed, if you haven't been here, where have you been? Uh, it, uh, back in June, I preached a sermon that was just talking about uh, the woman who uh, anointed Jesus' feet with her perfume and dried them with her hair. And we talked about how the, the Pharisees' objection to this was that if Jesus was really a prophet, he would know, quote, what kind of woman this was. And I use that phrase, what kind of woman, to just say that's kind of what we do in our lives sometimes when we find someone else difficult to deal with. We sort of think of them as the kind of person that we can't trust. And we, the, the metaphor I've been using is a metaphor of boxes. We put them in a box and we put them on a shelf and we put them out of our lives. And we feel like they're safe to ignore. And after preaching this, I began to think to myself, well, that was kind of high-minded, but let's think about what are strategies that people can use to actually be able to do this better? How can we really begin to do this? And so we talked about gratitude. Gratitude is one of the tools that we can use to make our hearts more receptive to other people. Uh, then I talked about a rhythm of feasting and fasting in our lives and how that can make us more receptive to other people. Uh, last time, last week, I spoke with you and we talked about opening our eyes to human suffering and saying, realizing that we can't solve all the problems of the world, but still opening our eyes to them can be a way of becoming receptive to other people. And today marks the end of, of the sermon series, and I have one more thing I want to share with you uh, today. And uh, to do that, I just want to um, say that, that there's a phrase that a lot of churches use in their service of baptism. I did my internship in a United Methodist Church. They use it there, but they also use it in other kind of more liturgical churches. Um, there's a time in the baptismal service for the congregation to renew their baptismal vows and to kind of remember experientially what it was like to be baptized and then to commit themselves to living that baptized kind of life anew. And a phrase that the churches will use at this point in the service is, remember your baptism and be thankful. Remember your baptism and be thankful. Remember a time when this was all new to you, a time when everything seemed possible. Remember a time when you and Jesus were just beginning your journey together. Do you remember your baptism? Well, some of you were baptized as babies, so you may not, but, but I, I was, and I remember mine well. I, I remember that I was so very nervous about the choice to get baptized because I absolutely, positively wanted to do what God wanted me to do, but I was absolutely terrified of baptism. And I felt caught between a rock and a hard place. I was scared of water in general. And I was scared of feeling so vulnerable in front of all these adults that I knew and respected. And I was scared of jumping into the baptized life. Not literally jumping into the pool. We didn't do that. I was Baptist. We were crazy. But we didn't jump in. But whatever. I was scared of jumping into this life without knowing what I was getting into. I was scared to death of being baptized. And I was scared to death of not being baptized. That's a little glimpse into little Mike Jordan, age nine. That's what I was like. But after, after the difficult decision to be baptized was made and the baptism was had, what a party was thrown. I remember people coming over to visit, my pastor and his family, all my grandparents, a few cousins thrown in for good measure. I remember a big party. I remember a gift I got from my pastor. It was a copy of Unger's Bible Handbook. Anybody have a copy of Unger's Bible Handbook around? Right? Yeah, and it was given to everybody who was baptized. It wasn't just because I was a precocious nine-year-old, but it was given to all the baptized people. And inside, he wrote something like, you have consistently challenged me. And I, <laughs> I didn't know how to take that then, but it's been said about me ever since. Uh, I, remember, I remember more mundane things. I remember that my mom let me choose two desserts to have at the party that day. And I can't remember the one, but I remember the other was lemon lush, which is not as scandalous as it sounds, but 
it was kind of a mud pie made with lemon pudding instead of chocolate. Uh, and I hadn't had it again, actually. And Kim Cockle made lemon lush for something recently. And I had it again. And it was just like going back to that party. Um, I remember those things. And I remember my baptism. And I am thankful. Right? On that day... I did grow up in a sense. It was probably the first time I made a decision on my own regarding my faith. And I I left the baptism and I left the party just feeling like I was surrounded by people who loved me. And people who would support me on this new journey with Jesus that I had chosen to take. And I was thankful. Now, I bring this story up because part of the text this morning is the baptism of Jesus, and it is an intense story. It's much more so than my little baptism. As Jesus is coming out of the water, we read that the heavens were torn open, which we sometimes just skip ahead to get to the voice. But imagine heavens, the heavens being torn open, and the Holy Spirit descends from heaven onto Jesus like a dove, and there's a voice from heaven, and the voice says, you are my son, I love you. I'm happy with you. And Mark tells us this story for a lot of reasons, I think. And one of them, I think, is that so his readers will know that even at this stage in his life, uh, Jesus was specially anointed by God. But, but, But I want you to see that in another way, the voice and the dove and the heavens served the same purpose for Jesus that my baptism served for me. His baptism was a time when everything was clear to Jesus and to everyone around him. God was there, supportive people were there, and Jesus and everyone else saw clearly the kind of life he was to have, the kind of person he was to be, the kind of vocation which he was to live out. He was God's son. And whatever else happened in life, Whatever else that meant, and I'm never sure how much of it Jesus exactly understood ahead of time and how much everyone else understood ahead of time. But whatever else happened to him, that revelation on that great day was going to color the rest of his life. On the day we were baptized, both Jesus and I saw with crystal clarity, this is who I am now. I'm one of God's children. and This is who I am. This is what I have to do. At least I thought I saw that. With clarity. Because like I say, I was baptized when I was nine. That was 25 years ago. Do the math. And things have not always flowed smoothly since then. Like most people, I've gone through many different ideas and changes in my life in the last 25 years. Changes in my sense of self. Changes about who I think I'm going to be. I've gone through periods in my life where I'm following Jesus very intently. And then periods in my life where I wish I had been following him more intently. I've gone through times in my life where I wanted to be an elementary school teacher, a history teacher, a pastor, a professor of Hebrew Bible, a campus minister, a sports writer, and on and on and on. And all through my life, there have been different churches and different Christian communities that have helped me to discern and understand myself better. There have been Christians who have come alongside of me and said with striking clarity, this is who you are. This is who I see you to be. Those of you who know me well know that this is a very, very important point in my spiritual life in the way that I conceive of it. It is not a solo project. We need each other. I I can't fully understand me unless I know you and unless I let you speak into my life about what you see in me. Why? Because God's spirit speaks through us as a body. And if I believe that, I need to listen to you even about who I am. In our culture, we're very fond of saying, nobody knows me better than me. And the church dares to say, you know what? You may have some insights about me that I can't see. Why? Because I have blind spots about myself. There are ways that I would prefer to think of myself, the ways that I would prefer to think of who I really am, that are mostly convenient for me. And I need to let you puncture that. So I can't be Christ's if I don't belong to his body. And I rely on you a lot to help me understand who God's called me to be. And I hope you also see something in my interaction with you that helps you see what God is calling you to be and do more clearly in your own life. 
So I appreciate the support I've had from these communities along the way. My little Baptist church growing up, the the Methodist churches where I interned, the Baptist church that I pastored, and now this community. But, But you know, even all of these communities that I appreciate so much, even with their support, there is something about the clarity of that day at my baptism. The clarity of that initial day that I can never get back. I'm not always clear on on who I need to be, what I need to do, even with the support of my community. I love you, but I need something more than you to have a healthy spiritual life so I can see myself for what I really am. You're part of it, but somehow you're not all of it. Does that make sense? It seems that even Jesus needed something like this because immediately after his baptism, look at what happens. We read, the Spirit of God drove him out into the wilderness. And, and the Greek here, not to be Greeky, but uh, uh, the Greek is the word for throw and the, the uh, prefix for out. The word for throw, ballo, like we get ball, like throw a ball, and, and ek, which means out. The spirit ek ballowed Jesus, and the, the spirit threw Jesus out into the wilderness. It's not soft language. The Spirit didn't invite Jesus out to the wilderness. The Spirit didn't beckon Jesus. The Spirit said, I'm throwing you out in the wilderness. You're going. And in the wilderness, he stayed for 40 days and he was subjected to terrifying things. Temptation by Satan. Physical vulnerability to the wild beasts and and angels, we read, came to wait on him. To minister to him. Today we can afford to romanticize the wilderness a little bit. We can afford to enjoy the wilderness because we've built roads to get out to the wilderness and to get back from the wilderness when we're done. We've built, uh, invented things like uh, camping gear to help us walk further into the wilderness and enjoy a night out there while still saying, and you can get out when you're done. We've built uh, things like, you know, just hiking boots that make us able to enjoy the wilderness even more. The wilderness for us is a place of renewal, a place of refreshment. The the wilderness is even part of the reason that we moved up here because our lives in Pennsylvania were so suburban, so concrete, and we said we need to be closer to, to creation. We need to be in the wilderness a little more. So for us, it's good and refreshing to be in the wilderness. And while this is important, while it's legitimate, it's also important to see that the wilderness did not have that same romantic connotation for the people who read the Gospel of Mark. The wilderness was a terrifying place. The wilderness was beyond the bounds of civilization. It was a place where nature was in charge and humans were not. It was a place of chaos instead of order. It was a place with its own rules, its own laws. And and the rules and laws were not mitigated or modified by human kindness, by human sensibilities. Going into the wilderness meant being, for Jesus, to be subjected to an entirely different way of living. One that that human frailty was not prepared for. So it's for this reason that people thought John the Baptist was weird. right? Because he lived out there. He came from the wilderness. He lived according to its laws. And it's for this reason that the Spirit of God had to drive Jesus into the wilderness. For 40 days of solitude, temptation, and vulnerability. Now we might not have an appreciation for the wilderness as a place of terror. But we can certainly appreciate, I think, the terror of being alone. Being alone is harder for some of us than others. I'm an extrovert. Big surprise. That means not only that I like to talk, that's not what extroversion means, although I like that too. But it means that I draw my energy from interacting with other people. So when we're talking, I enjoy it and it's like pouring energy into me to be with other people. So I'm terrified of being alone more than Jill. Jill is an introvert, and if you know her, that's true, which means not that she doesn't like people or she doesn't like talking, but to interact with other people takes energy from her, and she needs to be on her own, alone, to to renew herself. But there's something more... I mean, it's harder for me to be alone than Jill, but there's something more going on here, I think, than just personality type. Because there's a way in which all of us, introvert and extrovert alike... Fear being alone. We, we draw our understanding of who we are from how we fit into communities. 
Think about this. If I said to you, Jill is a professor of mathematics at Houghton College. She's a professor of mathematics from Houghton College. Think about those four words. Professor, mathematics, Houghton, college. And all four of those words only mean anything because we live in a specific group of people in a specific society. Professor means someone who has gained expertise in a specific field and is charged with passing on information and mentoring students in that field. That's part of who she is. Mathematics. Well, I don't know how to define math exactly, but we know what it is only because people have taken care to kind of sort out these interesting laws of numbers and shapes and quantities. Houghton. Houghton is what we call this place in the world right now. It was not always called Houghton, and uh, honesty and humility compels us to say it will not always be called Houghton. We must confess that it may be something different someday, but for now it is. And because we call it Houghton, that has specific connotations about this place and this time. And college, what's college? It's a a place for 17 to 22-year-olds to come, learn about academic insights in various fields, eventually be able to come to master a number of those academic insights in our culture. It's also come to be a rite of passage from youth to adulthood. That in itself may be changing as more and more college graduates move home. But whatever the precise meanings, right, sorry, but whatever exactly the precise meanings of Professor Mathematics Houghton and College are, we only know what those mean because we're in a society that understands those words in a certain way. You know what it means when I say Jill is a professor of mathematics at Houghton College. Because you're also part of this society. And you can draw a mental picture of where Jill fits when I say that sentence. There's tremendous comfort in this. Even for the most introverted person. There's a tremendous comfort to know where you fit in. In a group of people. Without a society though, you're on your own. Without a society, you have no professor. You have no Houghton. You have no college. You have no mathematics. Maybe that's philosophical. I'm not sure. But whatever the case, without a society, you don't have a sense of where you fit. This is what it meant for Jesus to go out into the wilderness. Having had this high moment. Having had this moment where supportive people were saying, and God himself were right there saying, this is who you are. We love you. We support you. Immediately the spirit strips him of those roles and throws him out into the wilderness. Where to the jackals, he doesn't look like the son of God at all. He just looks like another vulnerable piece of scared human meat. That's what it means to be in the wilderness, choosing to let go of all human roles, all the places we fit in in life that give us meaning, and approaching God simply as us, me, vulnerable. Why on earth did the Spirit of God drive Jesus there? Well, it's hard to say, and Mark was probably the first gospel to be written And Matthew and Luke, when they tell us this story, you can just imagine the people that read Mark said, well, what what happened there? And what was it like when Jesus talked to Satan? And so Matthew and Luke fill out the story for us a little bit and tell us about this fantastic spiritual theological battle he has with Satan. And that's a fine story in another sermon. But here it's so stark and so bare. I can only think Mark includes it because this is a vital part of preparing Jesus for his ministry. This temptation, this enforced solitude of the wilderness makes him come to grips with who he is in a way the baptism couldn't. The baptism has divine overtones throughout, but the wilderness reminds him that he is a man as well. For 40 days, he is completely dependent on God for his survival. For 40 days, the only reason he survives at all is the fact that God sends angels to him. And he discovers that God has given him the power to fight off the temptation of Satan. He learns something about himself that he couldn't learn while he was in society. Something he could not learn at the baptism when he was surrounded by people. He learns on the one hand what it means to be human and weak. And on the other hand, he learns about the strength that God has given him. That means he cannot be touched. The lessons of the wilderness are lessons you can only learn there. They can't be learned anywhere else. I'm convicted when I read this because solitude is so hard for me. I love 
the community so much, and those of you who hang around me know how much I talk about the community, that it's hard for me to, to realize that there are lessons I have to learn in the wilderness. There are lessons I have to learn on my own. I fear being by myself. I fear leaving those roles that you have called out and affirmed in me and appearing before God simply as Mike, vulnerable. I fear being by myself because I fear that there's not really anything to me in the end. I fear that my spirituality is as tissue paper thin, that my theology is weak, that my heart is impure. When I'm alone, I fear that I'm going to see those things in an unflinching light and I will hate myself for it. When I'm alone, I fear I will not see the power of God as Jesus did, that I'll be revealed as a sham and a phony, and that maybe God will be revealed to me as a sham and a phony, not strong enough to help me where I need help, not strong enough to give me a definition to my life. I care so much about having a place to fit in society that I fear that when I'm alone, I won't be missed. And that when I come back, people are going to have found somebody else better to do what I used to do. Do you see what I say that when I say that we avoid solitude for deeper reasons than just our personality? We avoid solitude because we're afraid of what it means to really be alone and apart. But I want you to see the promise of solitude. Look at Jesus emerge from solitude. And he is a man on a mission, literally. He knows exactly who he is. He knows exactly why he is here. And he begins to proclaim a unique, insightful, compelling, revolutionary understanding of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has come near. He says, repent now. Turn around. Believe the good news. It comes in me. Right? We've all been around preachers who preach without conviction. And then there are preachers who preach deep, authentic messages with conviction. This is a man who has conviction He has learned the lessons of community and he has learned the lessons of solitude. This is a man who has heard a divine voice saying when he was in the midst of community, you are my son. And then immediately he gets thrown out into the wilderness and those lessons get seared into him for 40 days. This is a man who knows who he is, not just intellectually in his head, but experientially in his heart. This is a man equipped by God to bring the good news as no other man before And no other man since. And remarkably, this is a man who is able to see other people for who they really are. Look at him approach Peter and Andrew, ordinary fishermen. And he says, you know, so far you've seen your life is just about bringing fish out of the water for food. But now I have something greater for you. Fish for people. Bring them from death to life. And they're so compelled by what it says, they they follow him. He he sees James and John, also fishermen, just spending an ordinary day mending their nets. And in them too, he sees not just fishermen, but somehow he sees apostles. And he says, follow me. And they drop their nets and they go. You know, all through the summer as I've been preaching about how we learn to view people, even people we disagree with, how we can do that like Jesus did. Right? When we put someone in a box, when we put them on the shelf, when we dismiss them from our lives... We see them as less than they really are. But Jesus here, do you see how he sees these men and he sees them not as less than they are, but for more than they know that they are. He sees potential in them they can't see in themselves. These guys would make ideal disciples, Jesus said, to people that you and I would just pass on the street. These guys would make ideal pillars in the kingdom of God that is coming in, he says. He sees that potential in Peter and Andrew and James and John, and they could never have understood themselves that way. And part of that, of course, is because he's God. But part of that is because he's learned these lessons of community and solitude. Having heard the voice in community, having heard the voice alone, he comes back with this confident, powerful sense of himself, and he's able to see other people for who they are. There is, of course... No reason for Jesus to be baptized. If by reason, we mean the idea that he had to please God somehow by being baptized. He didn't have to do it. He's baptized, though, because it's important for him to submit to the community to which he belonged. Jesus, after all, didn't come as God pretending to be a first century Jew. 
He actually was a first century Jew. And he embraced the community into which he came, even while he critiqued it. But at the same time, while he was a a first century Jew, there's something unique and untouchable about him. There is a detachment from the need to be affirmed. There is a complete absence of anxiety and ability to absorb the suffering of the world while not giving it back to them. And that comes from solitude. And it's these two realities, the reality that he had a people to call his own. He had a home to go to, while at the same time, he needed no human affirmation. He needed no human home. It's those two realities held in tension that made him so able to give himself away and to see the best in others. And so, for you and me to do the same, we also need to be acquainted with these lessons of community and solitude. We need to be confident that this congregation and the global church of which we are a part is our home. That we have people here who love us. That we have people here who see us for who we truly are. That we have people here who are bold to speak the word of God into our lives. There there are people who are ready to receive the word of God as we see it in our own lives. We need to see this place as a sanctuary in the truest sense of the word. When we do that, we can go forth with tremendous confidence. Because we've experienced God with each other and we can go into the world renewed. But sometimes we also have to let go of all the titles the world gives us and even each other for a season to remind ourselves that our strength is ultimately from God alone. When we experience the gift of community and the gift of solitude, the result is for us, as for Jesus, a confidence that we can bring good news into the world. And part of that good news is that we can look at others and not just see fishermen, but apostles. Not just employees, but but kings and queens. Not just students, but prophets. Not just college professors, but saints. And, And seeing more in them than they can see in themselves, we, like Jesus, invite them to join us in this amazing job he gives us. This amazing kingdom he's called us to bring in with him. Let's pray. God, for some of us, the lessons of community are difficult. Sometimes as Americans, we're encouraged to see ourselves as rugged individuals, people who don't need others. And yet, God, you call us into a a body of people and encourage us to listen and hear from each other, to embrace and be receptive to the way that other people see God at work in our lives. For some of us, quite the opposite is true. Some of us are open to the community but find it scary and difficult to be alone. But yet we need those lessons too, God. We pray, God, I pray for each one who's here who may be struggling with one of these calls. We pray, God, that you would give them grace to pursue that calling. For those who are scared of community, give them grace to embrace the community that's here. Give them boldness to speak the word of God as they see it. Give them grace to receive from others the word of God as they are called to see. And for those of us who fear being alone, God, reassure us that when we go into the wilderness, you will be there. That you will help us to see ourselves as we truly are. And that we will come back renewed and sure that you are dependable. Make all of us confident to bear your good news to the world. Make all of us confident and bold to see in other people things they cannot see in themselves. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Please stand and join us as we sing.
but Norman's empty praise. Thou my inheritance now and always. Thou art thou only first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling, to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, authority. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now, forevermore. Amen.